Hi folks, this is Lee Hutchinson, Senior Technology Editor at Ars Technica, and welcome back to the second part of this two-part special edition of the Ars Technicast. Last time we spoke with Northrop Grumman CTO Scott Stapp about the Internet of Things on the battlefield. Today we're going to take the conversation in a different direction and talk about the role of open systems in connecting together what's referred to as the joint force. That's the umbrella term used to refer to the combined and coordinated functioning of multiple service branches from the U.S. and its international allies. To dig into this, my guest is Richard Sullivan, Vice President of Program Management at Northrop Grumman. Thanks for being with us, Richard. So this is a really interesting topic, this open and secure systems and the joint force, and it requires a bit of unpacking to really understand what the buzzwords mean, I guess. For a big chunk of the R's audience, when you say open systems, that carries some specific connotations. It usually means we're talking about free and open source software, right? And while open systems in this context that we're talking about today can include open source applications, that's not really the core meaning here. So can you kind of level set us on what, in this context, open systems means? Yeah, sure. And thanks, Lee. I, I really appreciate this engagement. When we talk about open systems, we're really using that to replace the phrase open mission systems. And when we talk about the flexibility of putting different capabilities on different platforms. And so to the point that you're making, it is beyond the software compatibility and making sure that you have interfaces that are common, that a, a platform, an air vehicle, whether it's a rotorcraft, a VTUAS, a vertical takeoff unmanned system, or a unmanned airplane has a interface that can accommodate different types of sensors or payloads. And so it's not only the electrical interface or the, or the message interface, it's also the physical interface. So are we putting things in common physical interfaces that can be easily accommodated as well? I think an example of this is the USB connector. You know, the USB connector is a set, it's a physical interconnect to your laptop or PC that will connect a keyboard, a mouse, a hard drive, a video camera, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. And it's sort of that concept uh, that, that we're looking at. A lot of the sensors and the computing power are unique processors. And how do you make those unique processors interface with a variety of different platforms? And, and so when we talk about open systems, that's really sort of the concept that we're, we're talking about. Okay, so this is, this is like building an entire stack, like a whole vertical column of different layers. And this could range from like common application level protocols all the way to, like you said, physical connectors. And then additionally, the compute hardware in some cases that all this, that all this runs on. And it, it almost reminds me as an old IT guy of the, uh, the good old OSI model that we all had to learn. Yeah, in fact, it is, you know, we, we, we use the word APIs all the time, right? So we want to develop the API, the interface between the application and the application is a physical and software application to the vehicle. The fact that we can keep those APIs constant for a variety, it's not for all sensors and for all things, but to, to the point we can make them as common as possible has a lot of value having a, an open mission systems architecture. So this has got to be like a rolling wave kind of thing to implement, right? I mean, there has to be, I'm just guessing, but there has to be a tremendous amount of work done 
to get all of the different branches of the U.S. Department of Defense and, and then potentially all of the contractors that feed into them onto sort of a standardized, commonized set of interfaces and buses and hardware, everything from software all the way up into the physical world. This, it's How much work is there to be done to get from where we are now to get to there? The thing is, technology in all facets of all domains is always changing, right? So as we look at just the standard, you know, I use the word recapitalization, the things that are on the vehicles that were installed 20 years ago, which are, you know, still relevant, maybe not as good as they could be today with today's technology, they just get redesigned just as a course of the technology maturation over time. When you say, like, this technology attached to vehicles, you're talking potentially anything from like a sensor pod on an aircraft all the way up to a radar system on a ship and, and everything in between, right? That's correct, right? So if something that was just a brilliant technological marvel 20 years ago is something, you know, something like our iPhone today is, is hundreds of technological marvels from 20 or 30 years ago, right? And, and all those were giant sized and we've learned how to optimize and miniaturize over time. As the services are, are redeveloping and, and recapitalizing their radar sensors, as they're recapitalizing their EW sensors, and so on and so forth, one of the new requirements is open architecture interfaces, right? So just the natural life cycle of the different systems have the ability through their modernization programs uh, implement this. So it is a rolling wave, and it doesn't all have to be done instantly which is sort of a, a nice thing. Uh, just as you will change out your car, like most people every, let's say, four to five years, you don't want necessarily all the things that was in your car two generations ago, right? You're mm -hmm. gonna get the new things in your car and it's the same similar process. It's interesting to see this from a, just strictly from a, from a civilian point of view, and not to make this too much of a digression, but there's a, there's a great flight simulator that I've been playing. It's called DCS. It's super duper popular. And there is a, there is an F-14 module available for DCS. It's a, a fine Grumman product. And the F-14 module in this game has access to a, to a lightning pod. You can attach it on one of your wing pylons. And a lightning pod is, a, it's, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, infrared targeting dealies where you can, you know, laze a target and drop smart munitions on it. And even though this is, you know, this is a game and it's all modeled on its old technology, the introduction of that targeting pod onto that airframe clearly was something that happened afterwards. And watching the, the way that it has been integrated into the airplane, you know, there's a separate control panel that has to be installed in the backseater's position to have access to all the capabilities and the the clearly updated like readouts from that thing are projected inside the cockpit onto instrumentation and stuff. That feels like an example of some modernization that happened in, you know, in the 70s and in the 80s to bring in older weapon systems up to date. And it feels like we're doing sort of the same thing again on a rolling basis with all of our technology in, in, in the Department of Defense. I think they have to, right? It's about affordability and w whether what you have that's in existence as in a legacy state is something that can meet the mission needs. It all comes down to, do we have the things in our systems that are able to satisfy the missions as effective as possible and bring our uniformed service members home, right? At, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. that's, that's really what we're doing. And for the things that have the priority because the advancements in 
to technologies uh, on the adversary side, that is sort of what prioritizes what we do first. And then the second part of it is, is how going to where, where we were talking about is how can we leverage the advancing autonomy that you can have now these sensors have more, I'll say, smarts to them, where it isn't necessarily the, in your example of the F-14 backseater, having to hit all the buttons. If a lot of those buttons are, you know, you have to hit this button if this happens, the, to the extent that we can start automating more of those functions, if a set of parameters come in, and in every case, if those parameters would be a button press, let's take that crew workload out, the function of having the crew member do something, if in that case, you would always, you know, take that action. And so that thing is that, that ability to influence and implement autonomy in order to make missions more effective, to make our, our products safer, in order to react at machine speed, and in many cases you have to, are things that we're looking at as well. So that, and that brings up something that I really wanted to ask you about, because when you get into this question of, you know, force management, autonomy, let's sort of change gears here a little bit. Could you break down exactly what the nuts and bolts of force management autonomy means? Because it, it feels like then we get into having to trust algorithms. And, and, and I'd like to know, first off, what level of autonomy are we talking about? And how are you guys validating algorithms so that they can be trusted in this decision loop? Let me start off with the autonomy question. Autonomy, you can think of it as a, a layered uh, approach that that we're taking at Northrop Grumman with our technology that we call DARK. And DARK specifically stands for Distributed Autonomy Responsive Control. DARK has the ability to, to do systems of systems optimization. So that's the force level that you're talking about, where you have an objective that you want for a mission of multiple heterogeneous vehicles with, or in other words, different vehicles with different sensors. And each of the vehicles now have their own constraints, right? Depending on when they took off, how much gas they still have, how much hours in the, in the seat does the pilot have, and so on and so forth. Those are all variables which can help you optimize. If you knew, you can optimize which is the best vehicle with the best sensor to perform a mission, you know, the mission could be a, a surveillance mission, watch this point on the ground, and, and so on and so forth. With one vehicle, it's really easy to, to manage that, right? With, with four vehicles, a human now has to understand all these parameters, which are all constantly changing. The vehicle's position is constantly changing. The available gas, the human you know, fatigue, all those things are constantly changing. If there's any failures on the aircraft, that's constantly changing. You get to a point at the force level with these different variables, it starts becoming a complex problem where you can have the computer decide which is the best vehicle with all those constraints to perform that mission at that time. And as vehicles are moving and, and the, the dimensions are moving, vehicles are returning to base, new vehicles are entering the area, it is a completely dynamic scenario. And all of those are something that, from a force management, we see autonomy being able to manage that through a concept called objectives and constraints. You provide a set of objectives, you provide a set of don't go you know, past this border, don't do this, don't do this, and then the computer can optimize for that. You have to have some level of human control in the decision-making loop here too, because 
out of everything that the U.S. military does, logistics is is probably like the true hidden talent, like even better perhaps than than fighting wars. But sometimes there's mistakes, like the table of organization might say you've got 15 Humvees or 15 MRAPs, but you actually have 13 because two of them are down and, and nobody logged it correctly or, or, you know, whatever. So you have to be, there has to be some fuzz in here also to where you can shift from one decision to another because of non-accounted factors, right? Right. And, and so that's the responsive control part of it. And, and that's why it's actually in the title of our, of our product is that you want the human to be on the loop, not in the loop. So the human or the operator can can be making real-time adjustments based on real-time information. And it's exactly with your example. If if something just broke down, that is, you know, the Humvee broke down, that's the one that was assigned to do this task, and it needs to be done in the next couple of seconds, a, a human operator can make adjustments to the plan. Absolutely. Then there's vehicle-level autonomy, which is how is the vehicle taking its onboard sensors? And you can think of it as things like sense and avoid systems, things like auto landing, right? If you have a vertical takeoff, a, a, like a rotorcraft, an unmanned rotorcraft, wanting to land in an unsurveyed area, can you provide it with the right sensors, the, the LIDAR, VIDAR sensors? You know, maybe you have the digital terrain information and enable that vehicle to land safely, right? So through a combination of sensors and fusion, the vehicle is able to autonomously do something that is not to a plan, right? It is, a, is to an objective as well. And then you have uh, payload uh, management as well. So that's sort of even one level deeper. If you have a variety of payloads that have the ability to, on, on, a, on a platform that's got an electro-optical sensor, it may have a electronic warfare sensor, it may have a radar sensor, how can you detect something with one of those sensors and say, wow, I think I got something, EOIR ball, can you go and take a look to what my radar just picked up? And then getting multiple views with different phenomenologies enables you to positively ID something, as opposed to having one vehicle say, I see something, let me get an operator to call another vehicle that can get there in five minutes and look as well. So, so there are three sort of stratifications of autonomy that, that we look at, and how do we enable all of them to make a mission more effective? Now, everything I said is quite complicated, and how do you know then when you're invoking autonomy, and this is to answer your second question, when you're invoking this autonomy, that it's doing what you expect it to do? And your point on trusted algorithms is it just is so important for the understanding and the validation that gets put in place. For us, as an example, and if your listeners uh, go and, and look up the X-47B from North of Grumman landing on an aircraft carrier, the first time that was done was 100,000 plus times or hundreds of thousand times in a simulated environment adjusting every one of the parameters to understand how is the aircraft going to react in the carrier having more dynamic sea conditions, how is the aircraft in different wind conditions, and so on and so forth. And you have validated simulations and validated outputs that give you confidence and trust that under any input condition or any realizable in input condition, that the vehicle is going to respond within a set of expectations. That's sort of the hardest problem about machine learning in any field, too, right? It's computers don't intuit. 
at least at least not yet, right? They're as good as the training cycles that you feed them. They don't draw conclusions. They simply synthesize only what you give them, and sometimes in, in odd ways. You know, they're interpolating or extrapolating, depending on what you want them to do. And then sort of the concept, as I mentioned, it is important in how we set the constraints. They can make the vehicle force level management example I gave earlier. The vehicles can operate within their flight envelopes. We want them to not hit another vehicle. We want them to stay within a certain area. And then the decisions that the autonomy is making is within those constraints. I want to change gears just a little bit. I have sort of one other line of questions I want to run down here as, as we're, we're getting into sort of the back half of this. And we had previously talked with Northrop Grumman CTO Scott Stapp, who did a great job talking to us about the, the battlefield Internet of Things and instrumenting all of the layers of the battlefield layer cake, you know, as it were. And I want to ask something that kind of bridges the gap between his interview and, and this discussion. Can you give me some idea about the, I guess I'd call it the propagation time of important information during combat up from the individual unit level to the command level and the existing complexities of overcoming the fog of war and getting battlefield commanders the, the correct mission information? And then talk about where where this idea of, you know, the, the, open, the open system armed joint force can cut delays out of what the current picture is? The first question, Lee, is something that I, I would really have to defer because it is the, what we're asked to do is to provide the, the products that can collect the information and that can distribute the information. But the, I'll say the value proposition of how that all works is something that the, the users are the best people to answer for that. But what I can answer is the, the concept of your second question, which is enabling the information so any one of our vehicles are nodes in you know, that Internet of Things concept and how the information on any one node can be shared through a rule set that you would say, you know, this information is shareable to everybody, this information is shareable to other fighters, or this, this information should be shared to the people that are going into this area of regard. Sharing everything with everybody all the time is a bandwidth problem, right, in general. So having some stratification of how you share what data to, you know, which users is something that is a, one important thing because of the limited bandwidth that just exists. The other one is then enabling that relevant data to be integrated into the onboard, uh, the sensors on the platform, we call them the organic sensors. And those offboard sensors or those external sensors, right, are provided through the nodes. And the ability to time register that data and the, so you know that if you have this radar detection, how do you know it's the same radar detection caught by another platform at some other place? How do you register that so that you can truly fuse the data? And that's all through a, a variety of processes, but it is that level of data integration that we see artificial intelligence, machine learning, you know, taking everything to the next level. Definitely things that our, our team's working on, the advanced networking and the advanced communications, both of them are critically important. You know, you have to be connected to create a network and then to have the network in place to share the data. So it's a combination of both 
the autonomy to put the, put the vehicles in positions where they could be valuable and relevant to one another, the communications in place that you can have a reliable connection. Just, you know, my phone hung up here on us a few seconds ago for who knows why. I, I mean, my phone's on the table. It's not even being touched. But, it, you know, it, it is normally a reliable connection, but even things that are reliable are not always reliable. So then what do you do about it? And then how does the systems react to comms that go down? Right. You have to design all of these for, for maximum reliability because notionally these systems are not going to be operated in a clean environment, in a, in a lab, in an office. These are systems that need to operate potentially in a forward deployed area potentially without a lot of logistical support and by, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who are under stress and potentially operating on a lack of sleep and all the other stresses of, of being deployed. Absolutely. And, and how do we make that as easy as possible, yet allow the operators to still have complete control? Kind of a nuts and bolts question then. We're talking about the joint force, and we see the word joint as sort of the leading word across a whole you know, spectrum of military acronyms. As since as technology and communications advance, it gets easier, or I guess at least, you know, air quotes, easier to coordinate different branches of service together, like having the Army and the Navy both take part in a specific engagement with complementary roles. And this requires, you know, all of that logistic skill that, that the military is excellent at, Getting the Army and the Navy to the point where they can coordinate at the unit level is hard, but we can do it. But putting aside the paperwork and planning aspect and looking at the actual bits that have to be flipped back and forth for all of that to happen, the files, the protocols, sharing information across a joint force itself is a tremendous logistical challenge. It's not even figuring out the chain of command. There are actual technical meshing issues that have to be overcome here across service branches, right? I think that, you know, some of the systems are going to have definitely an easier time implementing that uh, ability to be connected as, as one. The different technologies that we see, you know, some, some of it is you want to build a purpose-built radio that can connect to everybody, right? To field that across everything that exists in, in all the services is a major uh, undertaking. But at the end of the day, the systems are communicating. So, for example, the cell phone services are using different bands, and it's not much different than how the military radios are. But yet, you have no idea what service I'm talking on because there's something in the middle that's translating the different cellular companies' frequency bands and making us all connect. That concept is, is similar to what we're looking at, at bringing forward is... How do you leave the existing aircraft, vehicle, ground vehicle, surface ship, comm system in place, but enable that data to not really care whether that was a UHF, whether that was a TTNT, whether that was a SATCOM data link, but it really cares more about the data. And there are going to be some things that have to translate between fourth gen and fifth gen and, and all, the, all that kind of stuff, uh, those are products that, uh, that we're making and, and that we're, we're developing and, and in some cases we're flying on vehicles. It is to be able to bring these different frequency bands together and then connect the data together. We have radio systems within our uh, mission system sector that does that. 
But you know, the 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 co- it really is though the concept of bringing all the data together, all the relevant data, and then how do you bring the relevant data just to the vehicle so that the time relevant stuff is delivered to the vehicle. So again, if 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 you're driving <laughs> or I'm driving down the freeway and there's an accident and you're two minutes behind me. If I can give you that information and get off the road, that af- accident won't affect you, or it will minim- it'll affect you less than it affected me. How do we take sort of that concept to the next level, to the hundredth power, right? Is for all the things that we have that are deployed, how can we leverage the, the information that they have, scoop out what's relevant for another air vehicle? So... Every one of our vehicles that are, you know, sort of flying vacuum cleaners, collecting a broad spectrum of data, and how is that data relevant, you know, to a surface ship? How is that data relevant to a ground force? How is that data relevant to another air platform? There's data that's relevant in, there's likely, not guaranteed and not all the time, but there's likely data that's relevant that's going to help the other system be more effective and more efficient. That is a, a great problem to solve. You can think of every one of the, the platforms, the airborne platforms, the ground platforms, the surface platforms, the subsurface platforms, collecting some data that is relevant to somebody else's mission at some point within that mission. And being able to connect the, the time or the temporal, like you're gonna, this, is, this could affect you two minutes from now or two hours from now, and this information should go into your, your plan that you should dynamically update given this information that you didn't have before. And the information is already being collected. It's already being collected on our platforms. It's already being collected on every one of the platforms. And it's just about connecting the relevant data, whether directly to the platform, right? Because you may already be in a force package with somebody else that one aircraft sees something, says, oh my gosh, I got a detection through their line of sight comm link. The other vehicle could say, let me use my sensor and look at that same detection as well. Is it really a detection or not? This sounds extremely difficult to get right because you have to serve multiple masters, as it were, right? Because if I'm on the receiving end of this data and I'm a general at the division level, what I care about is going to be considerably different than what other users of these systems at like the brigade or battalion or even the company level are going to care about. Like sometimes drastically different information, right? Yeah, and, and the answer to that's yes, and that's where that AIML and that filtering of relevant information becomes really important. And I guess the, the trick is to figure out where in the stack you slot the smarts. Do you make the vehicle aware of what it should and shouldn't, what information it should and shouldn't be transmitting? Or does the vehicle transmit everything it can and there's, there's a system in the middle that gates the information out? Like where, where in the stack do you, do you put the smarts? So you, you actually bring up a, a great point, which is the concepts are optimized with distributing the autonomy, some level of autonomy on the vehicles themselves. It can manage some of its sensor information knowing that there are other aspects of a mission that it can provide information for. And then there is autonomy. So distributing the autonomy within the vehicles, even small vehicle, at at any scale of vehicle, and having it be able to have some autonomy to reduce 
the latency of information is something that uh, that's important. Yet providing the information back in your example, back to the the mission commander, the person at the air operations center. So they have knowledge of what what is going on and what the vehicles are doing as well. I usually have given an example because it, it gets everybody kind of riled up. So as an example, and, and it's football season right now, and uh, so I'm just going to give a football example. Every one of the folks go out with a play, right? So let's just talk about the offense. The offense goes out with a play. And they are looking at what the defense is doing. Everyone, the, the, the people on the, on the offensive line, the tight ends, the running back, the wide receivers, they're all adapting themselves a little bit. They're not grossly changing the play, right? If the quarterback goes out and he's, let's say the snap goes over his head, the objective of, of the football team is, is to score a touchdown, right, and go to the end zone. In that circumstance where the play kind of breaks down, they all just don't run to the end zone, right, which is ultimately what the objective is. What they do is they take a smaller an objective and they look at ways to get open. The running back will be on a, on a, a you know, to be a short pass. You know, there may be a wide receiver that still runs down. What they do is they're continuously adapting to what the defense is doing. And, and when we talk about the individual autonomy within the vehicles themselves, they're still constrained. They're not just totally open loop. What they're doing is they're operating with, within a, a different set of constraints so that the system can be optimized. And it's that level of information is that, that you want to share. You know, for example, you may always want to share your own precise position information so that every other vehicle knows exactly where you are in 3D space. You may also want to share, uh, you know, here's some of the sensor detections that I got that are in a relevant range. Maybe not every sensor detection, but sensor detections within, let's just say, 50 kilometers. And that then doesn't burden the comm systems. That then doesn't burden, you know, I'll say the information backbone. But in an instance where the plan can be run, there's very little information that needs to be set. Right, because the plans are are made in advance to execute an, a mission with optimally with the information that they had when they made the mission. And just like every plan, there's new information that comes in when you start. You shouldn't execute the exact plan. You should f- figure out how to dynamically adapt that. And th- and that's really what we see across air, sea, land, and subsurface. That is something that's available to be done. That makes a huge amount of sense. The only problem is I live in Houston, so when you talk about football teams that operate successfully, I'm just, I, I'm, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Well, sorry uh... to my Texans. <laughs> so we've talked about this. We're, we're near the end of, the, of, the, of, our, of our time here, and I know that the world of, of military procurement like is a is a slow world, you know the 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 DoD. You know, as we're discussing these open systems here uh, and and all of this upcoming technology, this uh, we're not necessarily talking about anything that's going to be rolled out in the battlefield, like in the next ninety days or anything crazy like that. But as with so much military technology, or as with so much technology originally envisioned in a defense role, there are lots of real world applications, you know, civilian type applications for for this, this concept of, you know, this joint integrated force using open systems, right? I think that's really a, a key takeaway is a lot of these technologies, and I'll say that the defense industry is developing things that are generally uh, very 
costly and, and they take more time because they're inventing a lot of stuff. And I think as a result of these inventions, we're going to see how does, for example, cargo integrate with the national airspace. There are numerous unmanned systems out there today. How do we take what's available today and then adapt the rule set that can enable the package delivery systems to bring things to your house? How, how do we look at the solutions for integrating unmanned air vehicles in particular to national airspace or international airspace? How do those rule sets transcend commercial capability as well as the military capability? And that's something that that is part of the conversation. And that's part of the things that my colleagues are driving. And I think that's, and that's good ultimately for everybody. How do we look at making uh, auto, automobiles safer? I think a lot of folks see the sensors on, these, on the vehicles that are doing traffic detention, blind spot detection. Those are all, I'll say, versions of things that were used to land vehicles and, and things like that in the past. So the implementation in the commercial world is different, but the, the concepts are, are very similar. And I think that the concepts that are being developed on the defense side will make everything that we do in our lives safer and you know more technologically advanced in five to 10 years. Now the speed is getting faster and the implementation of agile development has transcended into the aerospace and defense industry. So I think implementation and delivery of products quicker is something that has tra is transformed within the in the in the military services that is going to enable faster deployment of capability to the warfighter. And I think that is really important that we are delivering capability at the speed of relevance. Excellent. Okay, my guest today, Richard Sullivan, Vice President, Program Management at Northrop Grumman. Richard, thank you for making the time to talk. No problem at all, Lee. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this two-part special edition of the Ars Technicast. For more on this topic and for a whole range of articles and videos about how science and technology is shaping our world, stop by ArsTechnica.com.